Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today, we're joined by Shelley Tagilski. Shelley has recently completed her book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World, which has been featured in the New York Times, NBC, CNN, Forbes, People, BBC, and many more. After spending nearly 20 years in corporate America holding executive positions, Shelley decided to stop following the expected path and start following her lifelong passion, mindfulness and meditation. From hitting rock bottom in her marriage and becoming a single parent raising her son to almost losing her eyesight, many would have lost hope, but not Shelley. Her journey upwards from rock bottom began by simply showing up. Each morning, Shelley would commit to sitting on her little cushion and meditating before her son rose. She then began teaching free meditation classes each Sunday morning on the sands of Hollywood Beach, Florida. What started as a group of 12 friends blossomed into a community of more than 15,000 in a matter of just two years. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, once again, Shelley rose to the occasion. On March 14th, 2020, at the dawn of the crisis, she posted two simple Google forums online. One read, get help, the other, give help. The next morning, she was shocked to find hundreds of requests from both sides of the equation. She began directly matching those in need with those who could help. Those few hundred requests grew to thousands, which grew to over 600,000 people matched with six months. To date, the pandemic of love has reached nearly 4,000 volunteers worldwide and has raised nearly $62 million in donations. Shelley has been an organizer and speaker for the Women's March and has helped many other social justice marches such as Black Lives Matter to help drive real change. And in doing so, she has seen the toll that activism can take on people. So with all of that, Shelley, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, Shelley, what actually led you um, to writing Sit Down, Rise Up? Um, you know, your history, I know you touch on it in the book, um, but uh, for those who are listening who haven't read it yet, do you want to just give us an overview mm -hmm. of, you know, where you came from um, and then what was your journey to achieving such phenomenal things? So my journey is, you know, is not linear and I don't think anybody's is for that matter. Um, but yeah, I, I, I grew up in a conservative, Orthodox Jewish, very right-wing, hawkish uh, family in Israel, in Jerusalem. Um, on my father's side, 19 generations in Jerusalem. And on my mother's side, uh, a refugee, really. My mother was airlifted out of Iraq into Israel in 1949 after um, declaration of the country. And... Um, you know, I, I felt very, you know, as I grew up, as I left Israel, as I came into the United States, I felt, started feeling very constricted and confined and by the prescriptive nature of the contemplative practices that I grew up with. And also the fact that, you know, I felt as a, as a female, as a woman, as somebody that, um, was kind of 
growing up in these dual narratives, right? Like coming home to one narrative um, that really uh, seemed very archaic to me and very um, and 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 very old fashioned to going to attending a secular school in the United States, um, you know, where I got to see many different types of people, many different types of religion being practiced and also a varying degree of, of my own faith being practiced, right? Um, so, so, you know, there were a lot of sort of seeds that were planted within me growing up. Um, and, and I, you know, grew up in a household where I had a, a bipolar father who, um, whose erratic behaviors, like, you know, basically caused me to become almost like a, you know, type A perfectionist, because uh, I thought I could fix everything. And I thought I could solve um, the problems and make everybody in the family happy. And, you know, that continued that kind of um, it double, it's a double edged sword. It's like a blessing and a curse to, to be somebody who is um, the one to sign up and volunteer for everything. And the one that um, you know, tries to, to, to always get straight A's in school and to, to, you know, accumulate and pedigrees. But what I found was that as I, you know, grew up and as I got married and got divorced and became a mother and, um, you know, got, got remarried, et cetera, and kept rising up the ranks in the corporate ladder, I found that, you know, these habits of mine, um, really killing me. You know, they were really just um, exhausting me, causing massive amounts of burnout and fatigue and stress to the point where I was not taking care of myself and uh, eventually diagnosed with an autoimmune condition that uh, leads to blindness. Um, and I'm actually currently blind in my left eye and, uh, you know, getting treatments for, for my right eye. And, um, you know, I, I came to this like recognition and this realization and it wasn't, wasn't overnight. It wasn't something that, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, that's it. I'm going to change my life and completely do a 180, you know, degree turn. But I think it was the accumulation of sort of all of these signals from the universe um, that I finally started listening to when I was able to get quiet enough to do so and stop being so busy all the time, because, you know, in the Western world, we're just like busy, 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 and that's our culture. Um, but rather creating like space for things to breathe and to, to, to start to think about and to really feel into um, what it is that I'm feeling and what my body is trying to tell me and what my brain has been, you know, rejecting slash suppressing for so long. And when I resolved that the only way out is through, to quote Rumi, um, I, I finally said, okay, I got to get in there. I got to get dirty. You know, I have to roll up my sleeves and I got to, you know, uh, get in the trenches, so to speak. And, and I feel things that are very uncomfortable and admit to things that might be very uncomfortable for me if I'm going to actually make any type of lasting change. And so I, you know, spent 20 years, as you mentioned, in the corporate world. And in uh, 2015, I um, really felt more and more of that gnawing feeling uh, and a lot of anxiety about just even going back into work. I felt less and less fulfilled, even though I was running a company with 2,400 employees uh, and I'd reached the height of my success. I was making more money than I had ever made before. And I was more miserable than I'd ever been before. So I, um, you know, 
quit my job. Uh, I did not have a, a game plan per se. I, I had a kind of an idea of what I thought I wanted to do. Uh, but I knew that it would involve uh, being in a space of, of mindfulness, being in the space of, you know, activism and social justice, et cetera, et cetera. And I, um, you know, it led me to this journey. I didn't ever think that I would be uh, writing a book. Uh, I actually, that was like not something that was on my wish list or bucket list or, you know, hey, I, I want to become an author. I want to write a book. But, um, you know, I, I, I was approached by, um, by several people who told me as I continued to sort of teach and, and, um, and, and run workshops in the vein of uh, self-care and self-care for activists and, and work in spaces that many people in my field are not really working in, right? Um, that I decided that, you know, maybe, maybe it's not such a bad idea that I sort of uh, compile all of these uh, things that I'm teaching and, and put it into, uh, you know, a more formalized uh, uh, space on a page. Um, and the book's title was really interesting. And in there, uh, Sit Down to Rise Up actually came from my frustration uh, while being interviewed on a stage uh, with an audience of 5,000 people. I was one of three activists sitting on a stage in San Francisco. This was pre-pandemic. And, um, you know, we were talking about the intersection of activism and mindfulness. And um, I remember looking out at the audience and seeing, because I had done that conference before, so I'd seen like many of the same faces, lit the literal same faces, not just like the types of faces, but many of the same people who year after year come back to this conference and, you know, you, you have these conversations with them and you ask them things like, you know, so what's new with you? What's going on? And list for you, like, all of the new uh, certifications they got this year and the and all the courses that they're taking and they're going on this retreat in this place, you know? And, and my frustration is that for so many people, they get stuck in this like inner work loop, you know, this sort of hamster wheel that they never seem to get out of, like no translation between the inner work or deliberate translation, I should say, because yes, doing the inner work definitely show up different in the world, but there's no deliberate translation from the inner work to the outer world that is actually benefiting their circles of influence, right? Their, their friends, their family members, their community, because they're not moved to action. And so, you know, I, I asked, I posed the question on this stage and I said, if you're sitting down just for the purpose of doing the inner work and, you know, bettering yourself, and you're continually doing this year after year, decade after decade, but you're not doing it for the explicit purpose to, of rising up. Then what are you even sitting down for in the first place? And that is kind of where the title of the book was born, really out of this kind of radical thought and nature of how self-care really is um, meant to be engaged in in order to uh, change change the world. Mm, absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. And, um, you know, reflecting on, on what you've just said is for me, when, when I had read your book, um, I felt your fundamental message, which really rang and resonated so true in my heart was to just show up, um, you know, and how you, and even though you had all of these things going on in your life and, and, you know, being a single mom, having to raise your son, 
you were like, you know what? I'm just going to wake up and I'm just going to meditate. You know, I'm, I'm just going to show yeah. myself. And that's that action. That is that, that ongoing mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when you said that right. you're starting that meditation on the beach, you were like, you know, I'm just going to wake up or I'm just going to go to uh, meditation. And sure, it may be stormy. Nobody may show up. I don't care. I'm showing up. And I just, I love that so much because in life, there's always going to be things that are going to happen, you know, and reasons why right. you may not do this. Oh, maybe today's not such a good day. Maybe I should put this off till tomorrow. Show up. And I love that. That's action, yeah. action, action. But it's not just yeah. action for the sake of business, like you said. It's intention and then action. And I, I, I really mm-hmm. find that absolutely brilliant. Awesome. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head for sure. And I think you're right. We tell ourselves stories, you know, make excuses for ourselves. And I think, you know, I don't even remember to be honest with you, if I included this in the book or not, or if it was edited out, but it is something that I see often. Uh, and it's something that I say to my son all the time, who's now 20 years old and a sophomore in college. But, you know, growing up, I always used to say to him, like two kinds of people in the world, you can choose which one you want to be. You could be the what if or the why not. And the what ifs are just like, they what if everything to death, you know, what if this happens and what if that goes wrong? And what if I don't have enough, you know, um, clout or I don't know how to do it or, and the why nots are people who just are like, all right, so I'll try. And you know, worst case scenario, I'll fail or I won't do as great as I thought, but I'll have learned something or I will be able to get up and try again. And so really, you know, it's this kind of call to action to be a why not type of person and just get out there and stop what ifing everything to death. Brilliant. Brilliant. And, uh, you know, with your uh, call to action as well, um, what I was really moved by is so many people in the world are very fixated on themselves. You know, it's a very me generation, me, me, me. Whereas I feel what you've yeah. done with this is saying, well, how can I show up? for myself, but how can I show up more importantly for others? And the fact that everything that you've done so far has made the world a better place. You know, now there are so many things that have gone wrong, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, you know, uh, the, the protests, um, you, you guys in America had your political uh, <laughs> hostility is the best terminology I can use. Um, and with all of this going on, climate change, you've you've shown up and you've said, you know, how can I help the world? What can I give to the world? And through helping others, it is help. It is creating a movement. And I think that that is something that is so magical, so magical. Well, I think I think we all are capable of doing that. That's the point, right? I think we, we talk ourselves out of it, or we think, oh, well, I'm one person, or I'm not an influencer. But the, the the reality is, you don't have to be an influencer to have an influence. You every single day influence the people that are in your immediate uh, circles of influence, right? The people that you touch every single day in your household, in your community, at your workplace, at the supermarket that you shop at, et cetera. Um, really, you know, the, the intent and the idea here is that we have to, to metaphorically phrase it, we have to imagine that we're like a pebble. And every day we wake up, we have this opportunity to throw ourselves into the pond of life and recognize that by doing so, we're going to create a ripple effect, whether we want to or not, you know, and sometimes it's a ripple effect that we can see that's seen and known to us. And we could say, wow, look, I did this. And this was the result of it. And sometimes, you know, ripples are so far reaching that we don't even know how we've impacted a person's life. I mean, think about, um, 
you know, times in your own personal life where a teacher maybe said something to you when you were in sixth grade that made you believe in yourself, right? Or a kind word from a stranger on a day that you were feeling really down or um, it, it's just all of these acts of kindness, all of these, um, these actions that are deliberate, that we go out into the world and that we, we, we thrust ourselves into, um, into the world to say, I, I can make a change. I can make a difference. And the, all those little differences, the accumulation, a lot of people doing a little bit is actually a huge impact. And I think we discount often because the problems of the world do seem very daunting. They are daunting, they're heavy, but they're not meant to be carried alone. And so I think when we start to recognize that self-care is not meant to be individualistic at all, it has to be communal. And that when we start to recognize that the word self does not mean individual, you know, the self that I'm referring to is not just the, the me, the I that is, you know, sitting here talking to you, but it extends far beyond this body that I'm inhabiting, right? It extends to everything I've done in the past, everything I will do in the future. It extends to the fact that you and I are sitting here recording this today, but in a year from now, somebody might be listening to this and be inspired to move to action. Um, and, and our interactions in the world mean that we are part of an ecosystem. We are not just interconnected, as Dr. Dan Siegel says, we're intraconnected as well. When we finally recognize that, then it really starts to redefine shift like our trajectory in our life. Beautiful, beautiful. And by it, by acknowledging, because hands down, I I'm wholeheartedly know that we are interconnected without a doubt, you know, and, and, and you've just obviously reaffirmed that. Um, and the more people that can show up in a positive light, because there are so many people that are showing up in a negative light for their own selfish gain, and no matter who's being harmed by that, um, imagine a world we will live in if more people wake up and start caring about each other. And, you know, in, in your book, you really mentioned community as a big part of uh, this shift. Um, and you, I think one of the, the parts was like, um, you know, back in the day, uh, even though there was woman oppression and, you know, there's a lot of hostility, yeah. um, there was always that community and you knew that you always yeah. had and knew the people in your, your tribe or your little close knit uh, family um, and in this day and age it feels particularly the further out of the or the closer you go towards the city that no longer exists people don't even know their neighbors right. anymore so I love that that mm -hmm. reconnection and that that help for one another um, it, we, it, this concept you can really change the world it really can yeah I mean it it, it, it definitely I think is really one of the only solutions um, to the systemic injustices that have been built upon year after year, decade after decade across the world in different, you know, geopolitical situations. But I can reference, of course, here in the United States where I live, you know, uh, we keep crying out for this dismantling of these systems. And my kind of question is always, well, what are you replacing that system with? You know, yeah, sure, dismantle the systems. Let's dismantle the you know, social justice system, which is corrupt here. Let's dismantle, um, you know, um, the, the education system. Let's dismantle like everything. Let's burn everything to the ground. What are you building in its place? You know, and so the answer, I think, really does lie in this concept of mutual aid. 
this mutuality, this, this understanding that every single human being on this planet has something they need, regardless of their socioeconomic status. I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos, you have something you need. Doesn't matter how much money you have. And every person in this, this planet also has something that they can offer. Every person, I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you have different types of abilities or inabilities. It, you have something that you can offer to the world. We all suffer from some type of poverty. Some people suffer from financial poverty. Some people suffer from time poverty. Some people suffer from both. Some people have data poverty. I mean, I could go on and on. And the reality is, that we all are the puzzle pieces that kind of can help to fit each other's needs. And so if we can formalize that in some way, if we can air that out, even if it's a micro community level, it's on, if it's on a hyper local level, if it's only on the floor of the building you live on or in your community or, you know, in your suburban neighborhood or wherever it is that you are in your workplace and could actually create this formalized system where people understand what people need or what obstacles they face on a daily basis and offer help, you know, it starts to really create a paradigm shift in humanity because we start to destigmatize the, the, the notion that asking for help is bad because everybody needs help with something. It starts to, you know, destigmatize um, the fact that, um, you know, that, that, that the, we, we aren't good enough, that we aren't good enough to offer help, right? Um, and that every single person can actually do something. And it really becomes this beautiful ecosystem that emulates or that, that, that mimics what is happening in nature, in the real world, right? We are just such a small part of we think we're everything. We think because we're at the top of the food chain, right? So we think that we're really, as to quote Frank Sinatra, we're at the top of the heap. You know, that's what we're doing. And so I think the reality is, is that if we can, um, if we can understand that we are, inter yes, interconnected with nature, with all sentient beings, but also that we have this responsibility to not just survive and to lean on this notion of like survival of the fittest and therefore that is why capitalism is the best thing, but rather that everywhere in nature, whether it's in a coral reef system or in a rainforest or anywhere else, there is symbiosis, there is cooperation. And when different species cooperate or interspecies cooperate, they don't just survive, they thrive. And so we here are at a point in our history, human history, where, you know, we're reading books about the five best ways to thrive and the 10 best ways to, to, to seek happiness and all of these things. And it's because we're stuck in this like cycle where we don't recognize that the only way to achieve any of those things has to be interconnected to other people because we won't achieve true happiness. We can't achieve through true, tr uh, true thriving if we don't interconnect as a species and work hand in hand to lift each other. Mm. Oh, I, no, I really, I really could not agree more. And particularly now with, um, because of globalization and how there is so much uh, integration, if we, if you have a, a party that decides to, um, you know, detonate nuclear warfare, or if we just don't care about plastic and we keep polluting the ocean, um, 
earth will shake us off of their back. You know, we are at the point where human civilization could collapse or alternatively, as you said, we could thrive if we understand that we are all connected and that by harming others, we are actually harming ourselves. So I think that is a huge paradigm shift, huge. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think that it has to start small because when you start to speak to people about things like climate change, their eyes gloss over, you know, they either think all is lost, there's no hope, so what's the point? Or they really don't see the connection between I'm not using a straw more to what's happening in the world because we haven't been very good about making those connections for people, right? We just kind of yell at people like this, do that, this bad for the ocean, for example. But the reality is, is that, you know, we, I think as we start to work together and create these communal supportive rather than shaming kind of environments, then it becomes easier to do things. It doesn't become another chore. It doesn't become another inconvenience because we're all committed and rowing in the same direction and moving the obstacles that might be in path for us to be able to like, you know, actually enact some of these things, right? Because it's all, it's all woven together. Like you can't, you can't be upset, for example, that diabetes is on, on the rise um, when please um, is fast food, you know, you got to make, if you live in a, if you live in a, as we call them here in the United States, like if you live in a food desert where you're, you don't have access to fresh produce, then or it's too expensive, then, you know, it's a problem that we're perpetuating ourselves. But if the community comes together and says, okay, these people have enough, these people don't have enough, we're going to create this like transference of wealth. And I don't just mean like money wealth, right? But we're going to create this redistribution of wealth, make sure that everyone has enough, which is very possible to do, then, because we've seen it done time and again, especially in indigenous cultures, right? They're so good about doing that. And we can go back and learn from what they've done for thousands of years um, to survive and to thrive. Mm. And so that's kind of what your platform um, has has started to uh, introduce. Uh, you know, you're saying that um, you guys have over 6,000 or 600,000 plus people, um, and it's combining both people who are willing, who, who want help, and then people who are willing to yeah. give help. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about that process? Like, how did that yeah. platform start? Um, you know, how did you gain so much phenomenal momentum? So Pandemic Above is a, is a mutual aid platform that uses technology to connect people. And it's very simple. We're not a nonprofit or charitable organization. We are a nonprofit or charity destroyer. Um, I feel that many nonprofits, while are doing great work in this world, many humanitarian organizations are, but many of them are also stuck in this um, industrial charitable complex as well. It's become a business, right? Um, and I, I think you know, we could all conjure up and think of which organizations might fit that description. But the reality is, is that, you know, we, we've sort of made charity complex and bureaucratic and there's so much red tape. And, and I think that there, I know, not I think, but I know that there is a better way and, you know, because I could prove it. 
um, that we don't necessarily need the middleman, so to speak, to actually connect people to um, others in their community who can assist them. So Pandemic Above basically just started, again, locally, hyper-locally. I wanted to show up for my own community in South Florida where I was living, and I wanted to be able to connect people who had a need, a very tangible need at the time of the onset of COVID-19. It was things like, I need help filling my fridge with groceries because it's already hard enough, you know, and now I'm not working. So I need help doing that. Or I need help with uh, keeping my lights on or getting Wi-Fi for my kids. I need a laptop because my, 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 we don't have a computer at home and, and our kids need to go to school. So things like that that were very, very tangible. And we had people in our community who obviously could meet those needs. They had enough money to go out and buy groceries for somebody on a weekly basis or to pay a light bill or to provide a laptop computer that maybe they had extra was just lying around in their house. And so we just basically created this, this platform. It wasn't even a website at first. It was just two very simple Google forms, a give help and a get help form. And people would fill that out. And then I would look, we would look at the forms and say, okay, this person is asking for, for this thing. This person saying that they can offer this thing or that they can offer this much money that will cover that thing. And then we just connect the two people directly and we step out of the way. We allow for those two people to connect. So the donor drives the bus. The donor is the person that calls the person in need, introduces themselves and says, hi, I'm so-and-so. And I heard that you need help with your light bill. How can I help? You know, you could send me your light bill and I'll pay it. I can send you the money, you know, and they transact and they connect on a very human level. There's empathy there. And there's a lot that both sides of the equation get out of it. You know, not just the fact that the light bill gets paid, but many connections that were made. And we've made over 2.2 million connections at this point, individual connections um, that, you know, people have become friends. People have had an opportunity to uh, walk mile in somebody else's shoes or change their mind about uh, a stereotype that they may have had about somebody. You know, one of the stories I share in the book is from a woman that's a liberal in New York City, you know, very much a city urbanite who has all of her life fought for LGBTQIA rights, um, you know, was really a, you know, a social justice warrior. And she's connected to a woman in the deep South who's literally never left the deep South and who has Confederate flag stickers on the side of her, of her mobile home that she lives in. And, and these two women were abhorred that they were connected to each other at first because they thought like, what could we possibly have in common? How could I ever be friends with a person that voted for this person or that, you know, thinks this, it's so archaic or, that, that, that is so liberal that they just, you know, want socialism to take over the country, right? And so we have all these sort of lenses, these, these, these ideas, these preconceived notions that, about people. And, and what happens when you introduce people through proximity that think that they're so different is that they have a chance to connect on a very human and empathetic level. And that opens the door for a deeper understanding that we are, again, back to the theme, that we're interconnected, that we're not all that different, that we're from this human family, that we are the same species, and that really at the end of the day, all, all of us ever want to an opportunity to survive, yes, to thrive, to be happy, to be healthy, and to make sure that 
you know, our progeny has the opportunity to do the same. And so, you know, pandemic basically just grew to epic proportions with the help of a lot of, you know, influencers, people like Maria Shriver and Kristen Bell and Kelsey Handler and, you know, Deborah Messing, all of these wonderful um, people, women, especially who um, recognized that this was um, an opportunity during a time of disconnection for people to give back and connect, right? We were still very much social distancing at the time. People were like, you know, isolating. And so this was an opportunity for people in such a time. It was a response to that. It was an answer for, hey, what can I do? And how can I connect in a meaningful way with another human being? And it's really amazing because, you know, you would think, oh, well, people would ask me, is pandemic of love going to go away when the pandemic is over? And I'm like, no, because the pandemic of love is not over. Like the reality is, yes, the, the medical pandemic, the viral pandemic might be over or might be ending, but the, but, but hope and love and kindness are things that are also viral, that are also infectious, that can also, you know, um, completely take over if we will it, if we want it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's very interesting to be able to um, educate different communities. We have two, over 280 communities now across 20 countries in the world. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how this model is exportable across languages, across cultures, across barriers, and how people really, um, at the end of the day, do need each other. Uh, as much as we think that, you know, we got here on our own and I worked really hard. No, like there are a million people on your road to get you to where you are there. The fact that we're even communicating, you're in Australia, I'm here in the United States. And like, you know, we're, we're on a technology that was invented by a lot of people. We're on a phone or a computer that was invented by a lot of people and also then built by a lot of people. So, so there's just, you know, so many people that had a hand even in our conversation today. Mm, oh, couldn't, could not agree more. And, um, you know, I think you, you said that really well um, to reiterate uh, the foundations of your um, uh, platform, because I think in a lot of fundraisers, as you had touched on, um, you don't really know, like you kind of know where your money's going, but some of them particularly, like I, I you know, I, I like to, uh, donate and help out where I can but a lot of them I'll google these companies and then I'll look at the CEOs um, and then I'll look at where this money's going and you know a lot of the time if you've donated an x amount there's a very small fraction that actually goes to the people in need and there's always you know a voice at the back of my mind saying yeah. you know how much of this is actually going through is this worth me donating um, but if you physically connect things from point a the person who's who's giving to the person who's receiving I can see how, how much that would, would help um, because you actually know exactly who you're helping and you can see exactly the difference that you're making. And I could only imagine how rewarding that would be for, for each individual involved. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it totally is. We have thousands and thousands of stories and I'm sure there are thousands more that I haven't even heard of, but so many people have you know written into us and have shared their stories and... Um, and are still, believe it or not, we have people that are still transacting today. We still, because yeah, you, for many people, they've gone back to quote unquote normal or like whatever their new normal is because they're like, oh, everything opened up. I'm able to travel. I'm still working, you know, 
And so they just assume that that's what life is like for everyone else. But the reality is, is that so many people are still suffering because of the pandemic and they were suffering before the pandemic. But so many people have not bounced back. They haven't gotten back on their feet. You know, inflation is rising. Things are more expensive. And, you know, it's all well and good that, and I know that like America compared to a lot of countries around the world failed miserably in assisting people. You know, we, we got one check for like $1,200 and then another check or something like that. Whereas my friend, for example, in Scotland was getting 80% of her paycheck covered <laughs> during the pandemic, you know, and in Canada, our neighbors were, were, were at least getting some sort of a meaningful stipend. And yet we were expected to really just kind of the American way, figure it out, you know, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps forgetting that many people just don't even have boots in the first place. So they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So, um, you know, there are many people that are still suffering, like here in the United States, our moratorium for evictions have ending across different states. And so people who haven't paid rent for a year are suddenly faced with uh, a, a bill of 12 months worth of rent that they're suddenly miraculously supposed to be able to pay after 12 months of not working or two years of not working. And so they're under the threat of evictions. And it's very hard now, uh, especially in American cities, to find um, affordable housing, you know, because inflation is high, because our housing market has gone crazy, especially during the pandemic. And so um, you know, it, it's the sad realities that I think many of us find it easier to just kind of like turn away from. And so when we have the opportunity to speak to somebody that we're helping that is actually going through that crisis, if we are fortunate enough to not be going through it, I think it really makes it tangible. It makes it real. It makes it um, something that we can grasp and understand because now we know somebody who's going through it versus just like hearing about somebody that's going through it, you know? And we, and we, we, as humans, we're, we're programmed to care. Even if we say we don't care, it's, it's not possible to not, you know, biologically, evolutionarily, uh, our brains have been uh, programmed to fire off our sympathetic, you know, mirror neurons uh, and, and, and really feel that empathy, both in our heart and our minds. Mm, mm. And so just to understand um, the process, so you you thought about this idea, you saw that there were people in need and you're like, okay, um, you know, how can I show up? How can I connect the two? Um, and then you created this platform, uh, which you had no idea it would, I think, didn't you start a Facebook group initially? Um, and you had no idea. No, how- it was just a post. I just posted two links. I, again, there was no website. There was no platform. It was a Google form for give help, a Google form for get help. I posted two links, each Google form links on my Instagram page with a 43 second video clip. (laughs) And that was it. It was like, Hey, I know a lot of people in our community need help. Fill out this form. I know a lot of people can give help, fill out this form and we'll connect you and you guys can decide how to help each other. Um, And it was really that simple, but I think as it continued to grow and more communities were like, hey, how do we create links like this? And how can we, you know, do the same thing in our communities? That's when we started to um, build out a website and put all the different communities on the website. And, you know, it kept evolving. We were literally building the plane as we were learning to fly it. Uh, it's very simple, the process. Like if you go to, uh, let's say you need help, you go, to, you go to the need help form and you fill it out. It's a very simple form. You put in your zip code, or postal code, and your country, et cetera, and it puts you into um, the nearest 
it sends your form to the nearest um, chapter to you. So if sometimes it's in the same city, sometimes it's in the same zip, zip code or postal code, sometimes in the same state or in the same country. And then we match you to a person. It's all a manual process. This is why we need so many volunteers. The, the person in need gets vetted to make sure that they're a real person because we have a fiduciary responsibility for our donors. And then we connect that person to a donor via email, as I mentioned. Uh, we make the introduction and the donor is the person who makes the first move and decides how they want to connect with the person. They can connect first by, by email, they can connect by text message, they can connect by phone and pick up the phone. So it just really depends on how uh, the donor wants to manage the relationship at first and grow the relationship from there and, and figure out how to help. And so people take it to all different levels, but it's a very simple process. Uh, it's really that simple. It's, it's so easy. It's just super direct. And no money ever hits a pandemic of a bank account because we don't have one. Wow. So this is 100% non-for-profit. Like you, because managing 4,000 volunteers, like how do you even, how do you even do that? I mean, I'm sure at the beginning you had no idea it would get this big. So how on earth would you manage all these 4,000 volunteers uh, without even having a banking account or, or anything to facilitate? I mean, honestly, it's just all managed by grassroots volunteers that's what we do i mean i i haven't ever taken a salary um i don't intend to ever take one um i was at the beginning of the pandemic not taking my own advice and working like 16 to 18 hours a day to build out this platform and help uh you know train people but then i started to you know my my ceo mentality started to keep all, all those 20 the 20 years worth of uh of, of experience in the corporate world uh didn't go to waste. I, I started to uh, empower others and delegate to others um, to to uh, really create standard operating procedures and training videos and sort of just streamline the process as much as possible. So today, if somebody wants to start a pandemic of a chapter, uh, basically what happens is, oh yeah, one a person, a volunteer coordinator reaches out to them, uh, answers all their questions. Uh, and then we, if they decide they want to move ahead and go through with it, we have like a four step process of things that they need to accomplish and do. And we have it all, you know, email templates and video, uh, videos that, that, that are training videos that, that show them exactly what to do. And then we plug them into our global network. So I have like a WhatsApp group, for example, with all of pandemic of love, North America. Uh, chat leaders and uh, not talkingly it's they're all women <laughs> and um, it wasn't by design that way it just happens to be that women are usually first to sort of rise up and nurture and want to help um, and and it's amazing because we have become a community as well we share best practices we share frustrations we share stories that out of pandemic of love we've also really become like personal friends we we root for each other we cheer each other on we've been there each other through birthdays and through hardships and through cancer and through other types of, you know, um, situations where we've built our own community care, you know, which is incredible and, and amazing in and of itself. So it really is a, a and it takes a village mentality. Um, and I think, again, we forget that that's really what charity was 
years ago before we created this whole tax deductible infrastructure and created this whole business model around nonprofit organizations. What, what mutual aid really is, and this is not my quote, something that has been said time and again, um, you know, from even, uh, you know, Kropotkin, who originally like came up with the, the term mutual aid, uh, was a social anarchist actually from Russia uh, at the turn of the 19th century, um, is that mutual aid is solidarity. It's not charity. So, you know, if we can lean on that and remind ourselves that really, you know, it's, again, it's not a handout, it's a hand up and it's the ability for them, the person in need to also one day be the giver. Because just because you needed your light bill paid doesn't mean that you can't, um, you know, mow somebody's lawn or walk somebody's dog in your neighborhood or, uh, you know, do something else for somebody. So I think we, we forget that. We think charity is just like about giving people money and throwing people, you know, throwing money at people. And it's really not. It's about showing up in many different ways. And then the people like the, you know, if everything has a ripple effect, the connections you make through that action, um, you know, the lives that you touch through that action. And you're like, oh man, I actually feel really good helping that person walk their dog. And, and they're like, oh, maybe I'll do something more. And, um, you know, for, for yourself, yeah you know, seeing the book that you had written, um, you know, I think that that could help move and shift a lot of people um, and, and help alter their mentality as well. I, I hope so. I mean, that's really why I finally got my gear and started to write the book. You know, it wasn't definitely something that I, that I per se had time to do as I, because I, I started writing the book at the worst possible time. You know, I, I planned to start writing the book in February of 2020. And then the pandemic hit. So I was literally writing the book and building this organization at the same time, you know, and it's great in the sense that I, you know, obviously in my first draft of the outline of the book, I wasn't going to talk about pandemic of love because it didn't exist yet. So it was in that sense, it was perfect timing. Um, but yeah, it is my hope that this book gives people some somewhat of a roadmap uh, and, and lights a bit of a fire under people to get up. Uh, and and to do something rather than just sit down and complain totally oh totally and and just to you know briefly touch on that because obviously we've we've focused quite a lot on this platform which is phenomenal um and has really shifted a lot um but you mentioned uh agency and that uh you know every single person uh wakes up and was born with a certain level of agency uh did you want to expand on that a little bit yeah i mean i think we're all understanding that we we were born with a God-given free will, if you will, right? Um, if we're going to frame it in that way, uh, and and we have the we have the choice on a daily basis, and it doesn't even matter where we're where we're where we're at, you know, where we're born, right? If we're in a refugee camp, if we're, uh, you know, to 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 uh, lean on, uh, you know. Victor Frankl's work, like he was uh, in the Holocaust in Auschwitz, like in a in a, in a concentration camp. Or if you're living a great life and you're in Beverly Hills, California, you know, doesn't matter where you are. Every morning when you wake up, you have agency over something or over many things. It really just depends, like what the situation is in your external life. And I think that while most of us can understand that we were born with agency. Not everybody has a sense of that agency. 
And so I talk a lot in the book about how we need to lean into that sense of agency, this sort of um, moral obligation to understand that, that what makes us different as human beings, that what makes us different than animals is the fact that we can, you know, other animals, I should say, in the, um, in, in, in the animal kingdom is that we have the ability to really choose how, what lens to put on and what lens to um, look at the world through and also what actions we want to take um, or can take you know, that, that are, um, you know, we sometimes feel like are not, are not, um, you know, uh, necessarily the easiest path for us to take. Um, but it really just means that we also understand how we impact other people in this world. Mm, mm, beautiful. And you're also talking, so, um, you know, touching back how you started off, um, uh, you know, going through this divorce, uh, gradually losing your eyesight, um, and you t- spoke about how you had all of these core beliefs um, and you were acting out the, the, the perception of which you viewed the world. How did you shift your perception from saying, you know, I came from a conservative background, I'm a female, you know, there's not really much I can do, uh, this is my life, you know, um, woe is me, to going and saying, like, look, I can show up, I can shift the world, um, I can create this platform, um, you know, how can I give and I'm going to show up every day. Um, like you're saying, it's not a, it's not a, a, a click, but how did you change those core belief systems within you? Was there any skills or, or tactics or things that you did just so people are listening, if they feel like they're stuck, you know, th- their life is crumbling around them, um, what, what yeah. can you do? Well, so in the book, I, I give some, you know, very tangible tools about how we can make changes incrementally. And that's really you know, how I went about making change in my life and continue to do so is I, you know, I have sort of, um, as you said, like, like, a, you know, intentions that I center my life around or a mission or vision or purpose, if you will. Um, but I, I, and I let that be my North star, of course, but I, I, I incrementally do things on a daily basis, sort of you know, degree at a time continue to work towards centering my life around those intentions, right? Not around goals per se. Goals are great too, but centering my life around those intentions. And so I talk a lot in the book about, you know, my journaling practice, um, about I offer some of my prompts that I use to, and, and that I work on on a daily basis to sort of start chipping away at the site and chipping away at, uh, at what it is that I'm uh, that, that, that I, that I, you know, have to focus on and do on a daily basis. Um, I also talk a lot about the fact that really, again, self-care is such an important piece of what it is that we do. I mentioned earlier in our conversation that unless you're willing to really get quiet first, that you're willing to kind of lean into rather than, uh, reject or ignore what's going on with you physiologically or biologically, or, uh, you know, mentally, because it's uncomfortable. And I think that so many of us think like, oh, I can meditate, I'm too busy, or I have a busy mind, I'll never be able to quiet my mind. And, and that's really not the point of meditation. The point of meditation is to learn to coexist with uh, our thoughts, not to try to suppress our thoughts and to get rid of them. You know, it's really a way to coexist with them to the point where our thoughts are not uh, hijacking our physiological or biological reactions or the way that we show up in the world, right? 
Um, but it's a way for us to recognize them and to sort of allay them and say, yes, this is a story I'm telling myself. This is an, this is an emotion, but it's not defining who I am. And it's sort of a way to sort of excavate and compartmentalize all of those things. So I talk a lot about that in the book as well. Um, you know, as I started to um, really sort of exfoliate or delaminate, if you will, every layer of my life, um, you know, starting with um, after my divorce and as I, I was diagnosed with this illness, I, I started to realize that, you know, um, if I can ask myself fundamental questions on, and then there are different questions for every person, but if I can ask myself particular fundamental questions on a daily basis and I can agree, make an agreement with myself that I am not going to engage in or do anything that is not aligned with my purpose or mission or my intention. And by the way, intentions evolve and change. So, but, but in that moment, then things start to, to shift very slowly, but they start to shift and you, you start to, um, your courage muscle, your bravery muscle, your ability to, um, you know, show up for others starts with the showing up for yourself. So I think that, you know, to answer your question, and that was really winded and I'm sorry about that, but I think that people really can focus on things like, you know, journaling exercises with very specific prompts, understanding what they're centering their life around, you know, because I think a lot of people just kind of go through life and don't even think about that big type of a question. Um, and also in terms of like, even, you know, I offer uh, like a practice, a chunking practice that I, that I used, especially at a time when I was like working full time, you know, had a, had a young son, yeah, had a lot of things going on in my life. And I was overwhelmed constantly, always overwhelmed, like, oh, I'm so busy, so much to do, I can't, you know, and, and I actually, you know, employed this practice to be able to, again, chunk the things that are really working towards my intention, really working towards these, these um, important goals that I that I've set out for myself. And so, um, you know, yeah, I think that it's all incremental. It has to be incremental. And so, but we've got to get started. You've got to show up. You've got to do the first step in order for it to, to, to start to build that momentum. Oh, no, I thought that was a, a great answer. So uh, journaling with specific intent. Um, and then when you have a, uh, instead of just fixating on goals, look at um, the feeling tone behind that, look at uh, where your overarching view should be heading your intention behind your action um, and then chunking that information so you can uh, facilitate a very busy lifestyle um, and not feel mm -hmm. so overwhelmed. Um, so where would you, mm -hmm. like now that you've got this book out and um, you've got this platform that is just absolutely booming, where are you setting your own intentions? Where do you see this um, eventuating or growing into? Um, my intention is to currently in my life, my intentions are to, um, empower people as, as many people as possible so that, um, this work can proliferate and continue even in my absence one day. Right. My other intention has always been connection because every single thing that I do has to have some sort of a human connection component to it. My third intention is, and this is one of my mantras, which is no barrier to entry, meaning that everything that I do has to be um, inclusive 
it has to be intersectional and it has to be equitable. Uh, so everyone has to have access to it, not just the haves, not just people who can afford it, right? But everybody. And so if, if it doesn't meet that litmus test, then I don't engage in it or I figure out how to make it meet that litmus test. Uh, and finally, for me personally, really, um, I've been working on balance <laughs> because um, my life has been very imbalanced in the last two years between writing a book and then promoting the book and launching an organization, but still very much doing all the other work and projects I was doing way before um, you know, the pandemic or pandemic of love started or writing a book started. So I, I'm really trying to um, hold myself accountable and my self-care community, my community of care actually also tries to hold accountable to um, making sure that I um, achieve that balance as often as possible, or at least try to. Mm. And then obviously helping you uh, achieve that balance would be uh, ensuring that you are facilitating uh, a practice of meditation regularly. Uh, do you practice yoga at all? Or is there any other activities that you do to help calm yourself down yeah. from all of this busyness? Um, that, 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 yeah. Well, so meditation is the core practice of mine. It's non-negotiable. It's like, I don't leave the house without putting clothes on or brushing my teeth. I won't leave the house without meditating because I'm, I don't feel like I'm human <laughs> or the best version of myself uh, if I don't. So it really has become a very strong habit. I've been you know, a meditator for over two decades now. Uh, and I don't think I've missed a day in like, you know, probably 15 years at this point, or at least since my diagnosis. And so, um, so that's, that's one part of it. Sure. But I think, um, for me, um, I'm not great about, uh, you know, doing any type of formal exercise routine or going to the gym or, you know, doing yoga, et cetera. Um, I am much more of a nature person. So I get out into nature. I enjoy all board sports like snowboarding, skateboarding, surfing, et cetera, paddle boarding. But, um, yeah, I just, I try to put myself in the line of beauty as often as possible on a daily basis. I take hikes as, as, as much as I can. I get to the ocean or a lake as much as I can. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this past six months I've been in, I've been fortunate enough um, to be anchored here in uh, Lake Tahoe, California, which is beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. And, um, you know, I've, I've been able to go snowboarding multiple times a week. I took up cross-country skiing or skate skiing, which is great. Um, and I didn't think I would like it, but I loved it. And so that became my form of exercise when I wasn't on the mountain snowboarding. And, um, and yeah, that, that, that's my, that's my church, you know, that's my, nature is my, is, is myself, um, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, that helps me kind of anchor myself and find balance. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, from, uh, even we're talking about how we're not disconnected from other animals, you know, it's, we are animals. So, uh, nature is who we are. Like we are part of nature. And so people who live in right. uh, concrete boxes and never leave uh, and walk in a concrete covered city and never engulf themselves in the very essence that they're from, um, is a bit sad so it's really cool that you are um, you know uh, aware and and, and uh, emaciate yourself uh, in in nature so I think that's beautiful um, and with your meditation how long do you meditate for it depends on the day you know I would say the minimum is about 10 10 minutes would be the minimum the average is probably 20 minutes um, and but again it depends on the day 
you know, sometimes life is, is such that you wake up late and you're late to something. And so you don't necessarily have those 20 minutes at that moment. So uh, rather than, you know, skipping over it or self-flagellation, which you're so good at doing, I, I try to get in sort of a, you know, two, three minute breath practice just to regulate my system, my nervous system. And then I come back to it later during the day. And maybe sometimes I don't get to it until uh, nighttime, like, you know, but, but for the most part, my practice really is like the, a morning practice because I just feel like it's easier to hold myself accountable and to um, have that routine um, because I, I'm a true believer in routines, uh, and, and, and the formation of uh, helping the formation of a habit. Um, but what I will say is that I think a lot of people try to start with 20 minutes of meditation. You know, they're like, all right, I'm going to do a 30 day meditation challenge and I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes a day. And it's like, don't, don't do that to yourself. Like <laughs> very rarely, if ever, does it work like new year's resolutions, like start small. There's nothing, there's no shame in that. There's no shame in starting with one minute meditations and incrementally building up muscle. Um, and if it takes you six months to a year, you know, it doesn't have to be like all done in 30 days or in 21 days. You can literally just work, work breathing practices throughout your day, micro practices throughout your day. Um, you know, we know that, uh, especially now after, after COVID, everybody should know how to properly wash their hands, right? <laughs> And using basically open water, 60 seconds, you know, uh, scrubbing your hands. And so we do that multiple times a day because again, we're humans and we have biological needs. So when you're washing your hands multiple times a day, rather than staring at yourself in the mirror or being on a, on a phone, on speakerphone, or, you know, just use 60 seconds to just close your eyes and just breathe. You do a simple breathing practice, regulate your breath, and you'll, you'll see that at the end of the day, you'll have five or six or seven or eight of these under your belt. And every single time that you do that, when you leave the bathroom or leave the, you know, the sink, you'll already feel a different quality to yourself in the way that you're showing up to whatever's next, whatever's coming next. Mm, totally. Well, I mean, I can even just speak uh, from my own personal journey. Um, incorporating uh, daily meditation has phenomenally changed my life. Um, luckily, my mother, uh, she used to meditate or still does every day. So I kind of grew up in that environment. Um, but then moving out of home, I didn't really think it was worth it um, until, you know, I started again. I was like, wow, this is really quite a, uh, a phenomenal thing to incorporate uh, for anybody, you know, whether you are um, uh, somebody who really believes in uh, something higher than yourself, or if you're a hundred percent atheist, it doesn't matter. Like uh, it, it's, it's brilliant. So, right. um, but yeah, no, thank you. Uh, you know, I would, I would don't want to take up uh, too much of your time because I know that your, your time is valuable. Um, so I just wanted to summarize uh, as one of the questions I do love to ask um, is if you had to have one message uh, to the world, uh, what would that be? Um, oh God, I guess. Um... I would ask people to ruminate or meditate on this phrase. Um, enough is a feast. Enough is a feast. Beautiful. Beautiful. No, beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and, um, you know, really, I think igniting that uh, shift for change um, and change for the better. Uh, like we touched on the future for a lot of people, it seems like a very scary place with all of these uh, global issues uh, hitting us. 
um, and the level of interconnectedness that we are through internet and and so on, we're the generation that's more aware of any sort of um, global issues than ever before. And it's quite frightening. But for us to step into what you have been uh, writing about and talking about is being that change that you want to see um, and facilitating that movement, even if it's on such a small scale, um, we can alter our future for a positive life. And, and I really love that. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and for the uh, creation of this platform. Appreciate it.